welcome to another edition of Building New Realities, which is the podcast we do at Future Visual. Delighted today to welcome Phil Rowley, who is the Future Director, Futures Director from Omnicom Media Group, um, to speak with us today. Um, Phil and Future Visual have engaged in a, a bit of conversation recently, so I thought it was an ideal moment to uh, have a conversation about building new realities. As well as being Futures Director, Phil is a media futurist and therefore the ideal candidate to talk to about building new realities. And I can tell you that he, the backdrop he's using, even though you won't see the video, is suitably in the brand of building a new reality. So welcome, Phil, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Excellent. So as I've sort of mentioned to you, you know, the aim of the podcast is to talk to people who are involved in the future space and, you know, and about building new realities. Uh, you know, when we started the podcast, obviously we, uh, Future Visual, work in uh, immersive technology, VR and AR, and we're all about enabling collaboration in those spaces. And then COVID came along, and that obviously has built a completely new reality for everyone. And I'm sure you get asked about that a lot, and, and we'll get onto it. But I'm kind of interested that as a media futurist, how far ahead do you look in your work? That's a really good question, and it's a really critical question. And it depends who is asking the question, which clients that we represent is asking that question. We like to think that we don't look at a point in time. What we think, and we think that the, that the future isn't um, a sort of a pin in the map. It is the map. So ultimately, um, when when you ask that question, it's it's now and tomorrow and everywhere between now and tomorrow, all the way up to ten and fifteen years in the future. So we never try to peg a particular destination on a timeline. That usually sort of sends clients off in, into a bit of a panic. What we do is we talk about the roadmap to that destination and all the waypoints along that along that uh, journey. Okay, so interesting. So you'll talk about trends and things that might happen. Obviously, that's a lot of a lot of the kind of verbs and adjectives we use when we're building new things is it may happen. Uh, it, it could be like this. So you talk about some uh, likely condition that may arise with people's interaction without pegging a time on it and presumably putting down um, a number of alternative outcomes that may happen at the same time at some unknown date. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to quote the great Kevin Kelly um, or paraphrase or misquote uh, Kevin Kelly when he talks about, um, you know, when you see rain running down a windscreen, you can't predict the path of every single drop of rain. But what you can do is talk about the general direction of that rain, which is down. And when we talk to our uh, clients about, about the future, we're never going to say, you know, the new Xbox or the new PlayStation 6 will be out on this year and it will do this. That would, that's just a, a completely foolhardy prediction. What we can talk about is general direction of travel. We can talk about the mega trends and the themes and the macro uh, issues that we foresee in the future. But then what we do is we tie it to tangible things that we do know that will occur um, in, in the extremely short term that might ladder up to that perceived future. So we have entry points into all of the predictions. Um, and what we don't do um, is ever sort of tie ourselves exactly, as you said, Tim, to one particular path. Think of it as a cone of certainty, if you like, at the, at the narrow end. In the now, it's quite narrow. We've got a fair idea what will have happened. And then, of course, it gets wider uh, and more rangy the further out you get. And we're prepared to move and maneuver and reforecast within that sort of cone of certainty or uncertainty. Cone of certainty, I like that. I think you should hand that off to the uh, FMCG group in your company, the ice cream department. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> cone of certainty. Well, uh, yeah, that's them. great. What's the flavour of this cone? It's certainty flavour. Exactly. So uh, what's your background? How did you end up in this field of futurism, which has always sort of kind of looked quite sexy, you know, looking into the future? Yeah, and I should be living testament to the fact that that is an untrue statement, Tim. Um, but, um, um, to be honest, if I'm without trying to give you a whole life story, when other people had um, posters of footballers um, on their wall, I had posters of robots and spaceships and, and planets. So, so I've always been somebody that's interested in, um, should we say, sort of the sci-fi futuristic tinged uh, um, area of interest. And I moved into advertising in 2000. I worked for Omnicom in 2000. So I've been in with Omnicom for 20 years. And when I first moved in, I was doing radio promotions and TV sponsorship and didn't at the time really think that there was a way of, I suppose, capitalizing on my, uh, on my hobby and my area of interest. 
and then, you know, about 2013, um, after um, a couple of years in digital, because I thought that, that was where head, things were heading anyway, um, and have done, having done a master's in, 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 in media, I um, was given, uh, was called up to work on um, PhD's newly acquired global Omni, uh, uh, uni, uh, Unilever account. Uh, excuse me, and given the job of innovation director. And then that's when sort of all my worlds collided. That's when I knew that I could start talking about the future and what was coming down the line from a digital perspective and marry that up with my sort of media and marketing knowledge. And then the most recent iteration of that um, is to become a, a director of futures at Omnicom, which has which is sort of not distinct, but sort of different from that innovation field in that I'm now actively required to predict and prepare for when those predictions rather than simply um, bring sort of present day digital solutions. Cool. So I'd imagine a lot of your role, obviously, as you outlined there is consultancy and giving people your opinion, uh, as well as um, working on do you work on sort of hard and fast deliverables are there any projects you're working on at the moment that obviously a bunch of them will be under NDA but are there any kind of projects uh, I, I, I'm going to make a guess that a lot of them end up being experiential um, I'd say that it, you are right it is a consultative role but because that I can recommend very very specific companies that fulfill some of that some of those macro trends that I'm predicting a future visual being one of them, but, but you know, also other companies in the AI, AR space or in the VR space or the voice space, that means that, um, that, that they can be embedded into campaigns now. So whilst that I wouldn't be responsible for the actual execution, I will have been responsible for the sort of the networked knowledge that's brought in companies that and startups and platforms that can activate those predictions in in the now and so you can get activational in that way but i wouldn't get my hands dirty on the on the day-to-day -day. you know i wouldn't be arguing over the color of a polygon uh, with anybody yeah that, that's like a whole another ecd role yes <laughs> exactly and so uh, uh, and how do you take a tech tech trend then and decide that it's the right moment to make it into an actionable innovation. I mean, I've always been fascinated by the rumors uh, with Apple that they've obviously got, you know, huge ideas and they're looking 10, 20, 50 years out and then they've got a bunch of quants or data crunchers who are looking at the market conditions and they go, okay, now is the time to release the iPod or now is the time to remove the headphone jack. Mm. Or the iPhone. I was, you know, that's a fascinating world. Yeah. Is there any indications you can give on what signals you look for? Because obviously your customers will want data um, to back up how you're taking your forecast and going, okay, now's the time to go. Uh, actionable deliverable on this we probably wouldn't get that specific i mean using your apple example you know if if if, if we were to use this sort of apple and moving into the ar space it's rumored and it'll probably will happen probably sometime into the next 18 to 24 months we'll see something that is you know a product that we think that that is marketable we'd never say you know now is the time to do apple ar get ready for apple ar or anything like that we would talk about ar in general and the way that it stretches from the now into the future and ways to get involved along that so we would never be so specific as to make prediction I think it's more along the lines of what we, we look at what's available now and when we look at what's available now we apply a couple of criteria and from a marketing perspective it needs to have some kind of reach um, so in other words it needs to be able to uh, uh, um, address an audience of a, a particular size now it doesn't necessarily have to be a big size it can be relatively large within its own category it has to be able to carry a commercial message or a piece of commercial content and it has to be able to be somehow feature within a campaign and I don't necessarily mean feature within an advertising campaign but for, um, act as a, a, a cog in um, a campaign mechanism alongside TV or outdoor or audio or whatever and there are only criteria really um, and anything else um, is just is left not vague again it's the cone of uncertainty you know we, we monitor for things coming down the track until they can fulfill those criteria that I just mentioned got you so talking about marketing trends uh, talking about things that are you know current um, what's your view on the change we're seeing in gaming at the moment because I'm very interested in the, the shifts that are taking place both in terms of gaming crossing over into entertainment and perhaps wider with the rise also of, you know, digital avatars starting to see campaigns by people like Nick Knight for Burberry. You know, there's, you, you don't know how much of that is just trying to create a, a, a little bit of hype, but obviously there's yes. 
there's this very interesting collusion that's going on that I'm sure you spent some time. That's very that's very timely, actually, Tim, because I've just about in a couple of weeks we're producing our Future of Gaming deck, which is uh, you know nearly finished, and it's a mammoth exposition on what the the, the gaming is going to look like over the next decade. And I think you've hit the nail on the head when you talk about the, the sort of the blurring. Of the of 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 the uh, of the membranes between gaming and on other forms of culture, whether it be film or music or TV or even education, I think it's a really interesting way into this to understand it at a macro level is sort of harking back to uh, Marshall McLuhan, the famous media theorist from the '60s, that talked about how every new media swallows the previous media. So originally we had writing and then radio came along and sort of radio was just effectively writing, but expressed through a different media, which is audio. And then television came along, which took radio and then added visuals. And then the internet came along and it contained text and audio and radio and and visuals of TV. Well, gaming is going to be the channel of channels. It is going to swallow all of that again. It will be the next Russian doll over the... Is that, is that your view? That's what you feel? I feel that way because the reason I'm... What I'm seeing from the future of gaming, I'm seeing... Uh, virtual concerts with Travis Scott and The Weeknd. Is that how you pronounce? He's knocked all his yeah, yeah, it's called The Weeknd. <laughs> weekend. That, that's on the uh, the wave. Yeah, he, he did it through TikTok, but it's still you might say a, a virtual. It's a bit of a cheat. Like the way yeah, they've got their numbers on the last two uh, outings, they did The Weeknd on TikTok and they did John Legend on YouTube. Right, there you but go. I get it. You know, they've got investment. They're driving some numbers. Indeed, indeed. So you've got the music, you've got Travis, you've got the Travis Scott, which got 27.7 million people um, viewed that live. Now, I know that that's sort of a, a one-off event in time, um, but there are other, other examples as well. Animal Crossing has had uh, chat shows uh, held live in Animal yeah. Crossing. So, you know, in film and TV, the, Keanu Reeves now has a starring role in Cyberpunk 2077, and we're getting Hans Zimmer doing soundtracks for, for computer games as yeah. well. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that gaming is going to be moving away from this idea of computerized competition, which is what it's been for the majority of its time, into mm. just, we won't need the word gaming anymore. It will be, because it won't all be about a quest or, or, or trying to pick up coins or kill bad guys. It will just be a third space. And I hate to mention the V word, which is virtual on this, because I think that for people that might have connotations of big headsets and Oculus Rifts, which cost, require high-end PCs or failures of Daydream and Samsung gear. I just merely mean this sort of third meta space where people meet and hang out. I mean, this is totally anecdotal, but I, I hope it stands for something where a friend of mine said he was talking to his neighbor who has grown-up children and he said i'm just off to play on Fortnite." and he went oh you know make sure you kill a few bad guys he said i'm not going to be killing anyone i'm just meeting some people and just sort of chatting to them in Fortnite." and was that the dad that, no that was the son that was his son <laughs> yeah, that would be real that would be the cool dad um, <laughs> And I think that's it's anecdotal and apocryphal, but I think that it's it's emblematic of where we're heading. Is that is that these gaming game environments, which were formerly gaming environments, and environments which are virtual or augmented, like the kind that you you provide, Tim, are going to be sort of new canvases for every other media to take place within. Um, and so gaming is going to inform our culture, but it's also going to inform the way that we interact with these sort of third spaces and, and medias as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and uh, encouraging that you feel it's going to have such a sort of prominent space. Um, I, 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 you know, when you make the, um, the analogy or the, you know, the insight from Marshall McLuhan about media types swallowing previous media types, I mean, yeah, this is, and obviously each successive, each newer media type gets bigger, right? Small fish eats fish, gets bigger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's, you know, on this particular uh, engorgement or eating of the previous media type, uh, gaming is going to be huge. You know, if it's going to swallow up the gaming activity and you're going to have cultural activations within there, people are just going to hang out within there. Um, you know, all fascinating stuff because the next level beyond this, potentially we could make a statement here that this will be the, the, um, the, the last, I think of the phrase, the last pre-cyberpunk um, 
evolution like after this stage it's going to be you're actually then going to have yeah, bio yeah. Kind of inputs at some level exactly uh, and i and i think that i always slightly put the handbrake on or just touch the brake yeah me too because i just think you know uh, it, it, it's it's easy for people to for listening to that to sort of get get to think that we've probably gone a bit too far <laughs> and what i was going to say was when i was listening to that I, I don't want everybody to think that what i'm advocating is some kind of steven spielberg's ready player one but by by this time uh, in three weeks time that's not going to happen mm. but what we are seeing is this sort of growing together of of and, and stitching together of of media um, um uh, and, and gaming is just the canvas for, for, for what's going to happen the other thing i should instantly add is is that there's going to be so much more there's going to be so many more people gaming the biggest slice of the pie right now for gaming is people who don't even think that they're playing games these are hyper casual gamers so people that are either lapsed gamers like me i haven't really had a proper games console for about for about 20 years although i'm a mobile gamer there are people who have, have been sort of re reactivated um, and there are people who um, you know, just think that it's the crossword and the word search but just on a, on, a, on a touch screen so they didn't consider themselves gaming and thirdly hardcore gamers that are having a snack between meals because they just can't keep away from from you know a screen and all of that um, across increasingly more powerful phones I think OnePlus have released a phone which is sort of 90 frames per second just to, in order to cope with with, with Fortnite um, and 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 the plethora of um, affordable smartphones which are um, growing in, in in emerging economies and the the feeding of that need by Chinese software companies who are getting really good at mobile gaming all of that means that the the bottom of the pyramid that big fat user base of people who can play for the first time whether they know that they're being a gamer or not continues to swell and that's like again using sort of funnel analogies more people will be poured in at the top now i'm not saying that just because you play angry birds all of a sudden you know the next week you've picked up an oculus quest and you're in the middle of half-life alex but i am saying if you pour enough people in at the top more may come through um and, and convert more and more gamers and that's going to help that cultural um acceptance of that sort of third space um if yeah. you like yeah yeah and and of course this this has all actually been uh, accelerated by covid, COVID. Oh okay. goodness, yes. So we, we we've managed to hold back on like how has uh, COVID affect your world and your customers' questions so far. But perhaps now would be a good time to mm. to report back on, on what you're seeing uh, in terms of inquiry, people about working, people working remotely. Obviously, you know, sort of traditional Zoom type platforms that have surged. But uh, are people inquiring about okay, well, what comes next? Because people are getting Zoom fatigue. Yeah, I mean, we actually did a huge piece of work on this called New Horizons Post-COVID World and its implication for comms. And the reason we did that is we thought a lot of the commentary um, around COVID was um, uh, concentrating on the short term, um, as in the fact, well, supermarkets uh, have got huge queues and nobody's at school and cinemas have closed down and TV's up and streaming's up and gaming's up and, uh, and, and this. And we said, well, hang on a minute, you know, all of these things are probably going to go, unless there's some catastrophic apocalyptic event, and there is just no cure, you know, things will return to normal eventually. What we're really interested in is the long-term yeah. view of wh where we're going to be. And, and I likened it to sort of um, uh, Doc Brown um, in Back to the Future 2 when he, t he tells Marty that um, they've ended up on alternative 1985. And I feel that we're on, on alternative, heading towards an alternative 2025, uh, mm -hmm. where um, things that have been accelerated and they wouldn't have been as accelerated had COVID not happened. Mm. So the answer to your question is we, you know, we are, my role is really to talk about those long-term effects. So of course, in the short term, clients are talking to our investment bods about, you know, where is the spend? Where should we be putting our money? And the answer is of course, well, you know, don't put any in outdoor for now, put a bit in digital and TV and where people are, which is on their asses and on the sofa and um, watching television. Um, but the long-term um, effect of this, where we'll be in sort of half a decade's time, that's a different question. And I think sort of tying it back to what, you know, the reason you and I are talking is that I think there'll be um, a, uh, an increased focus on what I call internalized worlds. And by what I mean by that, again, is not straight to the uh, lawnmower man analogy. What I mean is people spending time inside their own, what would I call it, interest bubbles. Hmm. 
streaming has gone through the roof. I think that we will see um, uh, uh, increasingly those companies find out alternative ways of monetizing the massive increase in viewers that they've picked up over COVID, some of which will fall away, but again, some of which will stick as if you're chucking stuff at a wall. I think people's increase in gaming, which is a, a gone, okay, people will, of course, go back outside and head to the park and go to the swimming pool, but those will have, that will have stuck to it and, it and will have sampled what gaming is like and sampled what um, Deliveroo and, and, uh, and, and, and Zoom is like will stick, some will stick. And it's incorporating those behaviours into how we think customers and consumers will behave over the long term that is what I've been concentrating on. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, what's the um, the uh, Nvidia re- uh, product launch yesterday? I think it was yesterday or the day before. When obviously they're launching the new GeForce Three series, which we've been excited about for ages. I mean, we didn't upgrade. So yeah, uh, GFX nerding here. But the uh, the nine eighty Ti card was so transformational for um, for VR. And then we went to the 1080. And then the last series, the 2080, which they talked a lot about, we skipped because it didn't feel like enough bang for buck. But I'm not sure if you're aware they launched a new range this week. The only reason I know about it, it was people um, uh, um, parodying it and memeing it on Reddit. There's lots of people who have taken screenshots of of the conference and the launch. And that's how I've got my, seem to have got my information third or fourth hand with people parodying it uh, rather than from the horse's mouth. Right, yeah, Jensen in his kitchen. And yes. his, his unfeasibly large pot of spatulas. <laughs> but anyway, um, the point I was going to make there is we've been waiting for this hardware release for a long, long time. And a big focus of the upgrade was we've made streaming tools, streaming capability uh, incredible, to be fair. Um, you know, there's an auto keyer. It was super clean, super sharp. Um, there was, you know, new audio features. And it looked like they had pulled in, um, I think it was ROC. Um, or someone like that, I'll put the correct name in the notes, um, who was like the number one Twitch streamer. They brought him into uh, NVIDIA. So anyway, big wow. emphasis on streaming capability right there. Uh, and they didn't talk about VR once. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm sure they'll be saving that for next year. <laughs> yeah, so, so the growth of streaming uh, is, is incredible. Um, so yeah, what, what are the technical challenges to your work and what, what do you think are the greatest opportunities in your particular field? I mean, it sounds like a lot of it is education. Um, yeah, I think the greatest opportunity is really to, in my field is to, I've always wanted to see if I could teach futurism as a discipline. Mm-hmm. So um, to actually ensure that clients understand that this again is not something that is pie in the sky or fanciful or flippant or just uh, pardon the pun you know a little bit masturbatory this is something which is designed to be of use in the now and so the greatest opportunity really is demonstrating that no matter how complex or technical the um the technical the, the technological territory may seem there is always an affordable scalable accessible uh, entry point um, that can be uh, inserted and integrated into campaigns. So in other words, what we're doing is, to your point about education, is we're showing them where the door is or we're showing them the bottom rung of the ladder and saying, see, that is only that high. You can get on that now and all you need to do is just keep climbing that ladder. But I think that what they do is when they see the top of that ladder, they just see the summit and think we can't get there and because they don't understand the incrementality of innovation. Just throwing in a complete... Um, a sort of slight non sequitur curveball. There's a book that I'm reading at the moment by Matt, by Matt Ridley called How Innovation Works, mm. which is just effectively a creed de coeur or a, 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 a big campaign or, 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 or um, manifesto for how no innovation just drops from the sky completely and utterly um, complete. You know, the term disruption, he argues, is a complete misnomer. And no matter how many disruptive technologies that you can choose as an example, there will always be multiple failed uh, versions prior that that, 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 origi- that seeming originator will have drawn from. So Thomas Edison, of course, big inventor, drew on loads of inspiration of failed light bulbs that had previously happened before him. And again, it's a little bit like people that don't understand evolution and say, how is it possible that this thing has just popped into reality perfectly formed? You've not seen all the failures that have, de- that have been developing all the, way, um, all the way down that sort of um, ape to man uh, uh, um, um, path. And so 
the biggest opportunity, again, is to just try and explain that fact and say, nobody just invented something brand new overnight. It's okay to try something small and modest that fits in with your campaign and then do it better next time and do it better next time. Futurism can be a discipline. Great. Uh, yeah, that's the way you want to go with, with, with projects, with clients, isn't it? It's like, well, let's just try it. You know, let's just dip our toe in before leaping in. Yes. Um, and is there a project or perhaps more interestingly a technology that changed your approach to your field? And that could include like the growth of something. Like we see the rise of, you know, we see the rise of TikTok in incredibly short amount of time versus the, the sort of volume of people it's uh, impacting. So yeah, either a service or a technology that's made you think, oh wow, do I need to think about this in a different way? Yes, um, audio. Um, I, I'm, I, I've also done um, um, a big thought piece called Audio Futures, which um, I was really conscious that um, people were talking about the future of audio and were talking about podcasts and programmatic, which are sort of the, the standard two Ps when you talk about the future of audio in, in, in advertising, but that there were audio technologies coming down the line um, which were about to change everything. Um, and I think audio, I saw a quote that said, we're about to do for audio what Jurassic Park did for video effects. And I think we're about to see an audio renaissance. I think that, you know, radio um, had a bit of a bad rap over the previous 15 years because people remembered Smashy and Nicey and Alan Partridge style provincial DJs. And then podcasting came along and program programmatic came along, which allowed you to do advertising, which was more bespoke and, and, and dynamically creative. And podcasts are a real sort of way into all these amazing niche territories of of, of content but i think some of the things that we're, we see coming down the line are really quite terrifying including i'll give an example augmented audio which has been attempted um but sort of not quite taken off yet which is this idea of a two a piece of technology that can deliver you complete audio freedom wherever you go and what i mean by that is imagine you have your two um uh, airpods in your ear and they have noise cancelling headphones that are just par excellence they are literally the best that they can you can demand utter silence at a moment's notice, if you want, shut out the, the, the noise and the, and the clamor and the tumult of the outside world. Definite evidence to suggest that noise pollution is one of the most understated reasons behind mental health issues. Or you can have everything from um, uh, your virtual personal assistant, so Siri within five to 10 years when it becomes, or Cortana or Alexa when it becomes more developed, the idea that you can have it dictate your emails to you, it can turn other media into um, verbalized media so it can read an entire article to you. The idea that, you know, the, the classic thing of watching two people share two headphones on a train when they're watching the same film, to mm. share intimate uh, sonic experiences through something called sound spheres so you start delineating your immediate environment and say i only want to hear these sounds within my immediate environment again all with the with the headphones in and i think that's really interesting that it does have some potentially some negative connotations which we don't have to listen to anything we don't like anymore we don't have to listen to the the, the you know the idiot yapping on his phone we mm. can be in total silence with our thoughts with our music with our media even just talking on a sort of cross between a silent disco and a two-way walkie-talkie with our loved one um or our friends or our colleagues without having to hear anything of the outside world which honestly i think is a blessing and a curse but i think it's a really interesting development yeah, I think like any technology or anything that has a big impact, it's like using moderation, isn't it? If you use it Indeed. all the time, it will uh, overcome or overwhelm our sort of inherent natural stability. It's interesting to hear you talk about audio in those terms, though. Obviously, we're all listening. Well, I think people involved in technology, perhaps everyone, is listening to more audio um, with the rise of wireless headphones, with the rise of audible books, with the rise of podcasts, Spotify. There's just more you know there's more of everything right now <laughs> my big skill is 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 curating yourself and curating your life which is what we were always kind of sold as the um you know the the economic dream or the capitalist dream is like you'll have more choice um but you actually that requires some discipline to be skillful with your choice um i find myself listening to i don't know if you listen to uh, nts radio but they've got some infinite loop channels and so you can just put on like beach sounds or slow focus and i find that slow focus really does help me with working um so yeah, there is such a huge growth area in in the thing that you're talking about tim from you know asmr um, the autosensory meridian response if you don't know what that is look it up and you will either go one way you'll either go what the 
F is this, or you will go straight for it and love it. It's people that make sounds that are comforting mm. um, and, and, uh, and chill out channels and Headspace now, if, I don't know if you know the Headspace, the meditation app, which is, you know, do, and, and Calm have music beds that can just wipe out everything. And it can be, to your point, you know, a, a swooshing jungle grove or mm. a waterfall or even, and then this is going to be double ironic, given what I've just said, the noise of a gentle city in the background. with If you're stuck in the countryside. <laughs> but that's the thing I'm trying to get away. Yeah, but it's the predictability and it's the control over your sonic environment. Yeah. That mm. I think that people are clamouring for. I don't know if you know the writer Douglas Rushkoff. He's um, he's a sort okay. of a, 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 an intellectual that that is a bit down on technology. You might add, or um, likes to um, uh, reassert humanity in 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 all of the mix of us sort of us losing our way. Um, yeah. And he has a podcast actually called Team Human. And one of the things that he was saying is everybody's effectively just trying to. He's, he's being a bit over poetic, but he said, everybody's just trying to get back to the womb. Everybody's just trying to shut out everything yeah. and feel protected in their own little cocoon. True. And they, and they have, they're fed what they want to be fed without any, any kind of um, intrusion from the outside world. They, they, they're not exposed to sound. They're not exposed to danger. Everything is taken care of in that sort of like, in that sort of conceptual media space. And, yeah. and, 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 and it is true that that's, it seems to be, and, and you know, AR and VR could potentially be part of that the idea of you know when you put something on you shut everything out and you're in a third space that you don't even need to worry about yeah i think um because you know a lot of people mention that you know vr meditation apps you know i i I, i'm still a little bit on the fence about them as someone who's meditated quite a lot and 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 obviously uses vr regularly um I think it would put you into a space or an environment that allows you to tap into a different set of mental uh, emotions and receptivity. Like it will change your state. And if you're in a busy office or a busy home and you go into that more meditative, calm space, I certainly think it will change the way you're feeling and enable you to interact with other colleagues, perhaps in a more considered, slower, gentle, more creative way, depending on what the environment is. But in terms of that, you know, mental cleansing or focus, I, I do still think that's a eyelids closed <laughs> job uh, at the moment, which is why I find the audio piece works so well, because audio you can take in. Um, and, and I just feel we get so much information through our, our visual cortex that it's, it's so stimulating, which is why VR is so great, because obviously you're the, the sort of the, the latency between what you see in your visual cortex and what you believe to be happening, because all the time we're just decoding the light signals that are, are coming into us. And, you know, that is the huge power of VR. And that's just where we are at the moment with the resolution and the graphical qualities that we have, which we know are going to get, get better. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I, there's obviously massive benefits for neurological conditions, mental phobias, treatments, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess when I'm talking about meditation and VR, I am thinking about that on the cushion, eyes closed, um, you know, mindfulness of breathing style. Mm. But for anything within which you are engaging with, yeah, I mean, VR can just uh, transform, obviously, the, the sensation of the environment you're in. But yeah, I, I'm really fascinated with audio. I've really noticed over these six months, actually, that you know, the amount of time I'm spending in front of a screen, like it always used to be a lot, but at least you'd go and walk off to a meeting room or go out and get lunch. And now it's pretty relentless. And, I, and I've had to sort of monitor my own, you know, scrolling or, you know, screen burn time. So taking those moments out to just be on audio or even just have an audio conversation with someone. Yeah. Not I, I mean, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if it's possible, but I actually think that I may have done over the last six months, I may have actually actively degraded my eyesight from staring at a screen um i've got to the stage where i was actually walking past spec savers the other day and I went, I'm, I'm gonna have to get an eye test and i started doing this is not good right i've started doing this sort of like uh, yeah exactly when, when, when you when you range a book in and out so that you the you do the focus with your arm rather than your yeah. eyes do it i'm yeah. like i think i might have done something staring very very yeah, hard yeah. Exactly the same. And also, the, I, I've noticed an interesting tendency as well. It tends to be perhaps more towards the end of the day when you're looking for stimuli almost to sort of lift you up and you might just be scrolling through articles and you can go into that slightly mindless state of scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You're like, okay, Completely. stop, because you're, you're looking actually for a stimulus 
to, to right. lift you up. I cannot, I violently agree with you on this. And this yeah. is something that my wife ch- constantly, you know, cho- chooses to point out because she, ironically, I'm, I'm the sort of futurist and she's a bit anti-tech and doesn't own a smartphone and, and, and said, you know, she says, put that down. You're not actually looking at it. You're not looking no, at it. You're, yeah, just, you're, not, you're, just, you're just scrolling. Yeah. Tell me a tweet that you've just read. I can't. Right. Yeah. Put it, put it down. I, I like I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> oh, anyway. Yeah. Cool. Um, I actually noticed a tweet you did this morning. Um, no, a LinkedIn post on uh, photogrammetry mm. scan. I thought you made an interesting comment on that, which was... Um, Watch out to the effect of watch out world, um, uh, you know, digital twins or scanned environments are going to become more of perhaps presentations, proposals. Where do you see that sort of photogrammetry um, piece getting used? Or what's your advice, perhaps your colleagues who ask you as a futurist? Hey, look, I saw your, your, your piece about photogrammetry. What does that mean yeah. for me? What does that mean for us? I think it's, I would hedge my bet slightly. I won't make a hard prediction on this, but I'd say it's possible that in the way that in the 2000s, we saw all of our physical documentation, our physical music and our physical photographs become digitized. And so the fact is you can now sort of access digital um, versions of old media, let's call it online, that it's likely that we'll see the virtualization within 2020s of objects and people. So it's almost like the 3D capturing of 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 that uh, process that occurred in 2000s where you saw your photos online for the very first time and what that means is is when you've got physical objects rendered in three dimensions within within uh, an, an online space you can start as as shown with that clip that i posted on linkedin this morning start having a completely different relationship with an object that you're not that you're not present with so of course you know if it's your if it's a 3d scan of your house then this is of no consequence but if it's a 3d scan of somewhere where you've never been and you have ultimate control over the way that you view it close up outside aerial views which of course you could physically never have unless you went up in a helicopter i think it will start altering our understanding of the physicality and the geometry and the geography of of objects um, and people and places and also second point is I don't like using the word manipulation because that suggests nefarious purposes, but I'm going to use it anyway. The idea that we can manipulate those images, we can take people and put them in different environments in the way that, you know, imagine a 3D Photoshop that we can just start altering the physical 3D objects. In, and I think it, it's got real implications for the way we see the physical world. <clears throat> yeah, the, I'm going to follow up on that. And it sort of touches on the, the point we made earlier but didn't explore too much which was like the um the avatars being captured by people like nick knight for big um big campaigns um, uh, and i recently my attention was brought to a tour a music tour that was being conducted uh, they'd created an avatar so roland or yamaha they have uh, in in their their musical packs they have a voice synthesizer and they've created a character called Kitsumi or something. And Kitsumi now has developed a kind of fan base and a major recording artists have supplied music for her. And she goes and does gigs, right? Using kind of, um, um, you know, hollow screen type technology where you've got that kind of musion, Pepper's Ghost kind of, what was used Is it the one with the long turquoise hair? Is that that's her? One. Yeah, that's, that's one. the one I know. Yeah. And then there's loads of people in the crowd with glow sticks going, yes. woo! I'm really having a great time, really yes. getting on it. So my point is that th- th- that stuff is going to grow uh, inevitably, particularly when people see people like Burberry doing campaigns. But what is driving that is people just want to be in a room together going, we're having a good time, the music's loud, and I'm getting stuff through my visual cortex that's making me go, woohoo! And if you push smoke and drop confetti, and I'm here with my mates, I will have an enjoyable process. So that's just neuroscience, isn't it? That's just us being stimulated and having a response that makes us feel good. So the, the, the point I'm getting onto, by the way of our digital avatar uh, niche, is how much work do you do, uh, if any, or within the ad industry, uh, branch of futurism around neuroscience and just understanding what makes people react the way they do and and do you actively plan advancements to go 
okay, well, how are we going to trigger that? How are we going to work with that? Yeah. How are we going to actually keep people safe? Because you talk yeah. about like an, an app like Headspace just makes mm. people feel calm and nice. Yes. Like, well, do yeah. we integrate that into the story at any point? But, but there's lots to say on this, actually, and I, I don't want to take too much time because it's technical, but the PhD, who is you know, owned by Omnicom, and I spent the uh, uh, best part of 15 years at PhD, were pioneers in this field. Um, they ran a series of um, uh, tests whereby they uh, looked at um, particular advertising messages that did a series of different jobs, and a assess the way that they did those jobs whilst the the uh, the the um, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for whilst the uh, person we were testing was being scanned in an MRI machine oh yeah so that we could see very particular uh, participant that was the word I meant to say participant cerebral responses to particular styles of advert and from that we reversed out a four box Boston style, Boston consulting style matrix, which um, stuck, which effectively diverted, divided adverts into four styles of of cerebral response. Um, And they were, first of all, um, what we call impacting. So that meant that an an immediate, an an immediate um, piece of explicit information which needed to be communicated to a disinterested audience so that would mean something that we would call in advertising terms as cut through you're walking down the street you don't care about uh, a cheese uh, really and all of a sudden it's two for one on cheese so the advert goes two for one on cheese very very loud and clear there's no mistaking yeah. there is something called reinforcing which is something which is a, a, a non-explicit um a non-explicit uh, um, uh, message to somebody who's disinterested. And so a brilliant example of that would be sort of classic Coca-Cola ad. The moment you see a hint of that red and a bit of that white stripe, you yeah, just think Coca-Cola. No. You don't yeah. need to say Coca-Cola. It's a drink. Get it at Sainsbury's. You just think Coca-Cola. And there's many tests online where you see the corners of logos or logos pixelated and you still recognize it. We call that reinforcing. There's activating, which is when people are predisposed to wanting to know something or they're sensitized to the message, but, um, but then they need to be given explicit piece of information that's called activating. So the example we always use for that is it's National Lottery Rollover Week. So you're already a National Lottery customer, but so you're already in the mindset that you are, you know, that you understand what the lottery is and you're thinking mm-hmm. about it. But then it's a rollover week. Better get a second line of numbers. And the last one, which was called building, which was a non-explicit, um, a non-explicit uh, uh, um, message to an interested audience. And what that effectively is engagement and sponsorship and partnership and association. And you can start thinking of the media that fit into that four box model. So, you know, a huge 96 sheet outdoor advertising is impacting, right? Because you can't flip and miss it. It has to cut through and say the new Audi, only, you know, uh, 39,999 at that showroom there. But when you think about something like, um, if, if we were to build a, uh, virtual Guinness environment, right, for, for, for Diageo, right, which wasn't going to specifically advertise product. It was just going to trade on the brand values around, let's say, the Rugby World Cup. Um, then that would be something that we would call building because people are in that, that, that v, the VR space. They're not drinking Guinness. They're not actually purchasing it, but they're there to sort of interact Uh, with the brand values to get a sort of latent, warm, emotional understanding of what Guinness does. And so we can start plotting new technologies into that four box model in order to understand how it can actually respond to specific brain functions of the participants or consumers. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of VR activations will be in that kind of more building. uh, Completely. Yeah. It's unlikely that you could never have an impacting strategy with VR because you'd have to go. You'd be like out of there, wouldn't you? Well, you'd have to you'd have to go and get the helmet and stick it, you know, and stick yeah. it on, and all of that is so involved. And even yeah. if you did, you know, there's no click through from a banner in yeah. VR as well, which means that you can't even. So the activating strategy wouldn't work either because you, oh, brilliant lottery rollover! I'll go and do that right now. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you're you're right. It's usually in that building space. Yeah. So we've we've reduced people there to four quite blunt sociological categories so it works works. i'm sure it works we're we're all simple but i'm going to switch the empathy empathy dial up now and if you had to ask if you had 100 million to spend on a social program no red tape how would you spend that um that's a great question isn't it um i tell you what i'd like to do i'd like to take the tenets and principles of the book factfulness 
and Thinking Fast and Slow. They're two separate books, uh, one by um, Hans Rosling and the other one by uh, Daniel Kahneman, which teaches us about teaches us about humans' innate inability to understand um, logic and numbers and uh, and remove our biases and our mistakes from the way that we see ultimately uh, truth and turn that into what can only be described as a um, a new school lesson, if that's possible. I don't know what it would be called. I mean, we're, we're sort of sliding off topic slightly, but, but, you know, in the era of fake news and echo chambers and people can ultimately claim whatever they like, they can, they can claim their own reality by dint of the fact is that they feel now perfectly entitled to ignore expertise. Mm. And I think teaching people to understand the value of how to actually consume information, sort it, curate it, and make a proper judgment on it, and mm. understand its providence and its provenance, and understand how to dissect it and analyze it. And that sounds overbearing and perhaps highfalutin and, 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 and complicated, but it doesn't have to be. And teach people that that lesson. And I don't know what it would be called. Somewhere it might be called information, informatics or information. It needs a title. Mm-hmm. But we don't teach that as a skill. We don't teach people how to assess risk. We don't teach people how to um, uh, look at a piece of information and ask the right questions about it. Um, and I don't know if you've read Factfulness, the book. But it is, I haven't. I'm aware of it. It, it is just a sensational piece of work because it's so simply and beautifully written. Mm. I just think this should be on the school desk of every single child in, in, in the world. It's fantastic for teaching exactly that, how to ignore bias and look for the truth behind numbers. Yeah, and that's you know, never more important than today where we're just getting uh, you know, a torrent of information. And you know, the subjects haven't changed at school for uh, a very long time, have they? The, no. the core subjects. So I think. IP information providence, IP theory might be a something good, like that. Something a like good, that. A good title for that. Yeah, we could all do with some more um, stop and look and look at the root of this information rather than just reacting yes. uh, instinctively and with our gut to every bit of new information that flows our way. Mm. So on that tip, if you could have a billboard with anything on it to help build a new reality, what would it be and why? Except go and buy Factfulness as a book. <laughs> um, well, that's a really good question because I'm, I'm mulling this over because I saw this incredible tweet the other day, which I'm still sort of reeling from. And I'm not going to, I'll be able to try and, I'll, I can't remember who did the tweet, but I can tell you afterwards. But he had this brilliant idea, and it's probably in complete opposition and contradiction to the thing that I just said about factfulness, unfortunately. And I'm still wrestling with this idea. And it was a guy that said, you know, in an era where national borders don't really mean anything and we are becoming much more divided, stratified by, I suppose, our values and our opinions on things rather than our nationality and our race and our colour and, and, and our wealth. The idea of starting for what can only be described as a sort of a virtual country or a virtual colony to lash together people who have similar values. And his idea was, and it was a crazy idea, which was to start them working in virtual spaces and virtual environments and in the cloud. And slowly as you sort of earn money, and and that was the bit that was missing, I'm not sure exactly how you do that, but you start to build your existence in this sort of online platform from the comfort of your own home, that one day, like the Mormons, you seek your own um, Utah and you go and remove yourself from wherever you are in that desk as part of that virtual community and you set up a new virtual colony but in the real world you start your own city and start living with people who you are um that you know that you can share their values you know that they can live together now i know that's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing right now we should be sort of reaching out to people we don't agree with across the divide and seeing is where we find common ground but you know occasionally um, I, I think I've had enough of this. Why can't why can't we just sort of get together with the people that we like and 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 live our lives with people who we share common values with? So that billboard might be an invitation to a sort of um, a virtual colony or the start of a virtual country or at least an exploratory. Um, what's the word when you sort of you're, you're scoping out of the possibilities of of this idea of 
of, of, of joining with people of common values um, across the globe rather than necessarily being stuck with people on uh, public transport uh, shouting loudly on their phones. <laughs> It almost goes back to that virtual womb thing, right? Which is yeah. just like I can't be bothered with other people anymore. Can I yeah. just go and live with people who are who are like me? It is the wrong attitude, but I think, well, you think they'll be like you, but they'll be assholes as well. Yes, they will. <laughs> uh, it sounds so. like a, a, a an advert for. Um, some kind of Muskian Mars expedition. Which is the criticism it's attract. Exactly. It's like we are, it's like Drax out of Moonraker, right? He's like, we're gonna take all the best and beautiful people, we're just gonna go to space and everyone else can do or or the film Elysium, you know, starring yeah, I love that. Matt, 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 Matt Damon. It's yeah. that. But do you know what? You know, science fiction is often the science fiction often predicts things, but it's only reflecting an extreme and sort of an extended reality of what we're seeing now. And I think that division in society. I think that the fact that that guy even tweeted that is really interesting because it shows that he is feeling what other people are feeling, which is this sort of cross between um, libertarianism and, and crossed with this sort of technological ability to isolate yourself mm. and, and join other people in these sort of virtual spaces rather than having to sort of, you know, um, share it with people who you might not want to share it with. Yeah, I think uh, a big part of that and, and something that one can do without having to set up a virtual colony is if you're going into that situation and people are really or really annoying you or you're forming loads of opinions about this yes. person is an arsehole yes. blah, 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 they're really going to annoy me and you sort of watch it watch that all forming and uh, and and just try and drop it all which leaves you kind of exposed and vulnerable because normally you're going into that situation with armor going i already know you're an asshole i'm not going to want to fuck you but you kind of drop all that and and give them a moment. I, you know, I often find that you know life can feel so combative, can't it? It's like you know, you know, you're forcing your way um, through events, through people. Actually, when you just stop and talk to them, it's uh, it's a lot easier. So I guess the point I make. These meditation there, apps are really, are really, they really work for you, Tim. Haven't it's they? the meditation it's, without VR. It's, it's the noticing <laughs> your thoughts as they're happening. That's it. very good. Very impressive. Um, exactly, it's the neural link. Yes. <laughs> Um, so on a final note then, you've touched on some of it, but what does being ridiculously human mean to you? That's a great question. The best example I can think of of this is, is the sense of humour that I seem to have inherited from my dad, actually, which is I don't think there's anything more funny to me than pure silliness. And, it, you know, as a reference point, the funniest thing that I've ever laughed at to the point where I actually couldn't breathe was the Monty Python's fish slapping dance, which I don't know if you've ever seen, where John Cleese uh, knocks uh, Michael Palin into a dock using a large fish. Yeah. And also selected the selected works of Vic and Bob, which, yeah. you know, I can watch the thick of it and Veep and, and a very highbrow intellectual comedies all day. And they are absolutely sensational. But nothing would make me laugh to the point where I'm actually gasping for breath than just pure, abject English silliness yeah. of the kind of Spike Milligan, Monty Python and, and, and Vic and Bob. And I honestly don't know if we just I don't I don't know if a computer or when people talk about AI replacing creativity, I don't know whether they'll ever able to flick that switch for me the, the, the switch of just abject ridiculousness yeah. and that's what I think makes us ridiculously human I, I would agree with that in the words of Vic and Bob I've taken a fall <laughs> oh Vic I've fallen <laughs> <laughs> love that I agree I think and, and, and more and more these days we need belly laughs I think laughing is you know such a great healer for us all yes love indeed ourselves. well look, on that note Phil Rowley, thank you very, very much for joining us on Building New Realities. It's been no an absolute problem. pleasure to talk to someone with such enthusiasm and passion for the future and what we can do with future thinking in the present day. Lovely. Excellent. Been great. Thank you very much. <laughs>